You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 9, 1 through 17. And getting into a boat, He crossed over and came to His own city. And behold, some people brought to Him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Good morning again. Child Dedication Sunday. It really is one of my favorite Sundays. It's also a a sobering Sunday in many ways because I'm reminded of the fact that uh, just I've been here eight years and I remember dedicating some children eight years ago and seeing them now and how fast they're growing. Something, my wife and I, we have five kids and something all under the age of 10, so we're busy. Um, but something we hear often from people, especially people older than us, is cherish the time you have because it flies by. And I think every year I feel that truth more and more, both as a parent, but also as a pastor. On any given Sunday, we have about 300 kids or more gathered in Sojourn Kids. And the question that I, along with a number of our pastors, has been wrestling with is how do we steward all of these young folks well? And in particular, how do we steward and faithfully raise them in a gospel culture when they're living in a culture of this world that's growing increasingly secular. All the stats that are coming out are pretty discouraging. Two out of three young people who are raised in the church are leaving the church by 
the age of 20. And so the question that I, it keeps me up at night is, Lord, how do we, how do we remain faithful? How do we raise our kids? And how do we stand firm on the eternal truths of God? That's one part of being faithful. But I think there's another part of being faithful. And that is by having the courage to ask, where do we as a people need to be more reformed to the word of God, more fully formed to the word of God? Where have we, where might we have strayed or lost vision that you put forward in your word for your people? Now, I say all that because a few years ago, Barna, they set out to research why so many young folks were leaving the church and what their perceptions were of Christians. And they interviewed thousands of people, thousands of young folks, millennials basically, outside the church, and they found a number of perceptions, common perceptions, that millennials outside the church have about Christians. One was Christians, they said, are hypocritical, hypocrisy, 85%. And what they mean when they say that is that Christians pretend to be something unreal and they convey a polished image that's not true or accurate. Now, the second major perception is they viewed Christians as judgmental. And when they said judgmental, they were clear that it's not just that Christians point out wrongs, but they also make other people feel put down, excluded, and marginalized because of their wrongs. And then the third major perception that people had of Christians, over 90%, and this won't shock most of us, is that we are anti-homosexual, that Christians are much quicker to show contempt for the LGBT community than they are to show compassion. Now, whether that's fair or not, and I I know a lot of Christians that I don't think those are fair descriptors at all, whether it's fair or not, whether that's true, that is the perception that 90% of people who are between the ages of 20 and 40 who are outside the church, that's the perception that they have of the church, of the community of Jesus. When they think of Christian, those are some of the, the big words that flash before their minds. And there's a lot, of reasons, a lot of things that have led to this. There's a lot of reasons for this, and it's a complicated discussion in many ways. But what's not complicated is when we look at the Gospels, when we look at Jesus' time on this earth, when we look at the first community of Christians that Jesus gathered together, none of those words would be used to describe them. There's a lot of different words and much different perceptions, a lot of different accusations even that were thrown against Jesus and his disciples and his community. And so this morning, as we press into this text, I want to let it speak to us and challenge us, but really invite us to examine our lives, to examine the culture of the church, and to challenge us on maybe, maybe a different way forward than in a different path than we're currently on. And so we're going to look at these three stories. Before we do, though, I want to ask God to bless our time in his word and for his spirit to do a work in us. So will you pray with me? Father, as we come to your word, these these are challenging, they're familiar, but they're challenging words, and I pray that your spirit would would awaken in us a desire to know the truth of what you say, but even a realization and deepen our understanding of how radical these stories are, how challenging they are to our understanding and our misunderstandings of who you are 
of why you sent your son and of what he's up to in this world. So Father, I pray for people who haven't been in church in a long time, who showed up here this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit would give them eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of grace and mercy that you show to all of us. I pray for people who have spent a lot of time in church and maybe they've, their faith's grown cold or their hearts have grown callous. I pray that your word would pierce them anew. And I pray for all of us that we might leave here with a, a deeper and truer understanding of who you are and your heart for this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The way I want to tackle this text, there's three stories, and I want to go through them one by one, and my argument will kind of build, and we'll get to the core of the argument by the end, I promise, if you're able to stick with me. But the first story, it's one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels. It's a story about a group of men who carry their paralyzed friend and bring him to the feet of of Jesus. And I love this story because it shows like just these friends' commitment to seeing their friend come to faith, to be healed by Jesus. In Mark and Luke's account, we're told we, we get a lot more color than we do in Matthew's account. We're told that these friends, they brought their carried their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Jesus is teaching in a house. The house is so crowded that they can't get in. And these friends are so committed to getting their friend before Jesus, that they climb onto the roof, they dig through the thatch, and then Mission Impossible style, they lower him down before Jesus. And it's one of my favorite stories in the gospel, one of my favorite stories to teach and preach, of just imagining Jesus in the middle of the sermon, dust and dirt falling down into his hair, everyone's jaws on the ground, like what is happening? The problem is Matthew doesn't tell us any of that. Like there's no dirt in Jesus' hair. There's no interrupted sermon. Instead, with very little detail, Matthew tells us in verse 2, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. I'll be honest, I was a little frustrated uh, this week. I'm like, you're, you're leaving out all of the best details. Like, this is such a great story. And Matthew's like that person who, you know, just downplays every story. They don't add any color or flavor whatsoever. I'm wrestling, what's going on here? Why did Matthew do this? When Mark and Luke give us all these details, and I think the reason Matthew cuts straight to the quick in this text is, if you've been with us as we've been studying Matthew, Matthew has been building a case up until now. He's been laying out a case for who Jesus is. And he's shown us that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham and David. He's shown us that Jesus is an incredible teacher who's come to usher in the King of God, or kingdom of God. And then in chapter 8, he's shown us that Jesus has tremendous authority over diseases and over demons and even over all of creation. And so he's building. And what he does here in chapter 9, he puts one more and maybe the biggest claim out there that he's made yet. Because here in chapter 9, for the first time in Matthew's gospel, something new happens. Jesus forgives someone of their sins. And up until this point in Matt's gospel, there's not been, Jesus hasn't forgiven someone of their sins. But here, Jesus walks up to this man and he says, son, my child, my boy, your sins are forgiven. 
This is new and it's unique. And if we weren't so familiar with Jesus and the story of the Bible, it would confound us because it confounded the original hearers and the original readers. And it certainly confounded the scribes who were standing in the room. They said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now the scribes, they were the religious scholars of that day, and they knew that for a man to claim that someone else's sins were forgiven, in doing that, he was claiming a prerogative that belonged to God alone. Only God can forgive sins, because all sin, even when we sin against one another, all sin is ultimately against God. So if someone lies to you, they've sinned against you in the lie, but they've ultimately sinned against God because they've broken his commands. And for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiving, he's doing something that no one has ever done before. In the Old Testament, guys like Moses and Aaron, they perform miracles. They'd even demonstrated power over nature. They've done a lot of the stuff that Jesus has done up to this point, but no one has ever granted forgiveness from sin in such an authoritative and unmediated fashion as Jesus does here. And that's why the scribes say he's blaspheming. They would say forgiveness comes from God alone and it comes by way of the temple through sacrifices and offerings and rituals and priests. You can't just stroll in Jesus and say this guy's good and his sins are forgiven. And they're thinking this, speaking, saying to themselves, but it's never good to think to yourself in the presence of Jesus because we're told in the next verse, Jesus knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Now for us, we would say it's a lot harder to say rise and walk because you can say your sins are forgiven, but there's no proof. But for the original hearers, it would be much harder and much more dangerous to go saying something like your sins are forgiven. Jesus says though, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. And there's a lot more I could say about this story, but the big point I think Matthew wants us to take away here is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Now the next story shows us that he not only has the authority to forgive sins, but that Jesus desires to do so. He doesn't just have the power to forgive people. He longs to forgive people. The first one's about, you know, his ability. The second one's about his heart. Because Matthew tells us right after this, in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Now the Matthew that's being spoken of here is the Matthew who's the author of this gospel. He's telling about his conversion. And what we learn is that Matthew was a tax collector. And even if he didn't grow up in the church, you're probably aware of the fact that tax collectors in the Bible, are they good or are they bad? Like everyone knows that they're bad. We don't like the IRS uh, and so we already have a negative thing 
connected to it. But tax collectors in that day were so much worse than an IRS agent. And if you're an IRS agent, we're glad you're here. We don't think you're bad. <laughs> the institution as a whole can be challenging, but... <laughs> See, you have to remember that the Romans had conquered the Jewish people. And they were ruling over them, and the Jews were subjects to the Romans. And the way Rome kept the Jewish people in check wasn't through just military might, but it was actually through taxing them into the ground. And they had this rather brilliant strategy of how they could do this without just endless rebellions. And what they did is they went to the Jewish people, and they found certain Jews who were willing to serve basically as the IRS agents and collect the taxes from their countrymen. And what these tax collectors would do, if you've ever been to an ATM and you had to take money out kind of last minute and you take out $20 and then there's a $4 transaction fee, anyone been there? You're like, $4 for what? Well, the, the tax collectors, they got to put their own transaction fee and it could be 5%, 7%, 10% anytime someone paid their taxes. And so they were seen not just as traitors, not just as constant reminders of the oppressive hand of Rome, they were also seen as crooks and as cheats and as thieves. So everyone would look at them. I mean, tax collectors, they weren't allowed into the temple for worship. Most families, they would, they would basically disown a relative who was a tax collector. They were seen as the same as loan sharks and prostitutes. They were the very bottom of society. When people would see them, they would see the dregs of society. And yet Jesus sees Matthew sitting at his booth, Jesus the rabbi. And he says to him, you, come follow me. And we don't know what's going on in Matthew's heart. We don't know if he's alone, if he's, you know, feeling remorseful for being a tax collector and betraying us. We don't know. All we know is Jesus said, hey, I want you to follow me. And Matthew responded. He got up and followed him. And then in the very next verse, we're told in verse 10 that as Jesus reclined at table in the house, that's Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So something happens in Matthew. Matthew gets on the horn with all of his friends, sends out the word and says, hey, I just encountered this rabbi who asked me to be his disciple, which everyone would have laughed at, like, yeah, right. And I want you to come and meet him too. And so all of Matthew's no good friends show up at Matthew's house and they're there with Jesus. And I love, I love it and I don't love it so much. I love the ESV's translation where it just says they were reclining at table. Others will say they were eating and drinking. I love this. They were reclining at table. So the tax collectors and sinners show up and... They're doing something. What they're not doing, Jesus is not giving them a sermon or a lecture. Like they're kicked back and they're eating and they're drinking together. And what's so fascinating to me about this is that Jesus, he seems totally comfortable being around people whose lives didn't conform to God's teaching whatsoever. Like to, to recline, to eat and drink with these guys? I mean, they were traitors. They were sinners. They were ceremoniously unclean, perpetually unclean. And Jesus seemed totally comfortable 
eating and drinking with them. And then what's even more fascinating is they seemed totally comfortable eating and drinking with Jesus. And it was a strange sight. It was a confusing sight. We're told in verse 11 that when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, again, if you know tax collectors are bad guys, you probably, when you hear the word Pharisee, you think those are the bad guys as well. And in many ways, when we read the the New Testament, they come across as self-righteous, and at times they are self-righteous. But I want, what I want you to see here is this was not an illegitimate question for them to ask. It wasn't wrong for them to ask Jesus or ask his disciples. They didn't really want to bother Jesus with the question. Why is he eating and drinking with them? And the reason it's not wrong for them to ask the question is because again and again in the Old Testament, the Old Testament actually celebrates God's people separating themselves from sinful people and from wicked people. You can read it in Psalm 1. I'll give you an example, Psalm 26, where the psalmist declares before God, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. It was a point of pride among God's people. It was a way of, you know, living separate, living holy, distinct from the world, that they would separate themselves from the sinners. And so when the Pharisees say, why is he not just hanging out, but eating and drinking? It's not an illegitimate question. And Jesus doesn't respond to the question with a stern rebuke, but rather with a thoughtful, articulate response. He tells them, even though they didn't ask him, they asked his disciples. And he says, you talking about me? I'll tell you. You want to know why I'm here and why I'm eating? And he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He doesn't say, why are you so judgmental? He doesn't say, sin's not nearly that big of a deal. He says, I'm a, I'm a doctor and these people are sick. And the whole reason I've come is to bring healing. An imperfect but, but hopefully helpful illustration, the temple in that day in many ways could be compared to a modern-day hospital in the sense that they're both places that people would go to find healing and wholeness. And as we all know, with modern-day hospitals, you can't just stroll into an operating room anytime you want. Like if you want to get into the heart of the hospital, you probably need a referral. You got to fill out an application, registration, insurance card. You probably have a whole bunch of tests. There's a whole lot of ritual you have to go through before you can ever get on the table and get the healing that you need. Well, in the same way, the temple was in many ways like that. If you were to go to the temple to find healing and forgiveness of sins, number one, you had to be ceremoniously clean. So you'd have to spend a week kind of preparing and making sure, watching what you're eating and wearing and everything else. You'd have to have a payment, a sacrifice that you would bring with you, and then you would have to have a priest there to mediate. And it was a very rigorous ritual. There's a lot of things, just like with the healthcare community, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. But 
if you did it all right, you could go and you could find forgiveness, renewed forgiveness for sins. And there were some people who had built their lives, like they'd mastered the temple system. They'd master, you know, the ins and outs, and they just knew how to do it. The Pharisees were those guys. They knew all of the secrets. They knew the priests to go to. They knew what time to show up. Like they knew it all. They had the system down. And then there were other people like Matthew, who no matter what he did, he would never get in the temple. He didn't have insurance. He didn't have any connections. He'd never get a referral. And so the Pharisees are saying, okay, you claim to be from God. This guy, he's immoral. He doesn't obey. He doesn't do, he's unclean. He doesn't do anything that's necessary to get into the temple, to get into the presence of God, to find healing. So Jesus, why in the world are you going to him and to his house? Jesus says, I've not come to call the healthy but the sick. I'm a doctor. You know, one of the frustrations that we have with healthcare in our society is that it's expensive, it's complicated, it's confusing. And a lot of people who need healthcare, who need to go visit a doctor, oftentimes won't because it just feels impossible to navigate the system well. And in the midst of all of the bureaucracy, it's actually really easy in our day for us to lose sight and to forget what hospitals are for, why they exist. Why do hospitals exist? Why were they founded? It wasn't to make money. Like hospitals exist to help sick people get well. And when the bureaucracy overtakes a hospital where sick people are no longer getting well, something has gone drastically wrong. And when Jesus says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means, he's quoting from Hosea 6, I desire mercy, speaking on behalf of God, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is in essence telling these Pharisees, you've forgotten what the temple is for. You've forgotten why God created it in the first place. God, the sacrifice that's being spoken of here, it's the sacrificial system. And he's saying God cares much more that we are a people of mercy than he does about how well we do our sacrifices. God wants us to be a people of mercy because God is a God of mercy. And mercy in the Bible... It means compassion. It means a willingness to help, even help people who don't deserve it. It means long-suffering. It means being generous and forgiving and charitable. And I want to be clear. Jesus isn't saying that there was no place for the sacrificial system. There was a place for it. But the sacrifices, they were never the point, never the end. The sacrifices in the temple itself, it pointed to a greater truth, that God is utterly committed to reconciling sinners to himself. It reveals his holiness, yes, but the temple makes it clear that God is committed to reconciling sinners to himself. And what Jesus is doing here in chapter 9, he's like the doctor who's had enough of the bureaucracy of the hospital and all of the other ways that people have corrupted it, corrupted it. And he basically becomes a field medic who says the people who really need help can never get in. 
and so I'm going to them. For I've come, not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in doing this, in calling Matthew and sharing a meal with all of his no-good friends, Jesus, he's revealing to us the heart and heartbeat of God. He's revealing to us what God is like because he is God in human flesh. And he is showing us that God's instinctual response to sin is not simply and not judgment and wrath and condemnation and damnation. God's instinctual response is grace and it's mercy. It doesn't mean that God won't call a spade a spade doesn't mean that there aren't aspects and dimensions of judgment, but God's reflex, when he comes into the, the presence of sin, it's not like whack-a-mole where he just damns the people to hell. His response, while there might be judgment, it's ultimately mercy, compassion, and grace. And we see this, I mean, that's the story of the Old Testament. Genesis 3, sin and rebellion. God could have killed Adam and Eve on the spot, Instead, he says, you're not going to be in the garden anymore, but he gives this great promise. I'm going to send you a savior. We see this in the story of the Israelites. You know, for every one year of faithfulness to God, they had 99 years of unfaithfulness. And what does God do again and again and again? He shows them mercy and compassion. And then when God puts on human flesh and he walks among us, who does he go and share a meal with? the very people that if the Pharisees had the power, they would have damned to hell a long time ago. God's response to sin is reflex. It's not judgment and wrath, not first. It's grace and it's mercy. And I want you to see in this that there is a word of profound hope here especially for those of you who feel battered, bruised, and broken by your sin, those of you who've hit rock bottom, I want you to know that God is overflowing with mercy and compassion. And with your life, you might have burned a lot of bridge and bridges and done a lot of damage. You might have hurt people deep, deeply, so deep, deeply that they have written you off. I want you to know God has not written you off because of your sin. God is a God of mercy and you can move towards him exactly as you are, exactly where you are because we see when Jesus walked this earth, he moved towards people in their sin as they were. That should give us tremendous courage to say, I can come as I am. And I mean, this is what made Jesus so utterly unique. When, when he said, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the Pharisees most certainly would have responded, what are you talking about? Of course we're merciful. Of course we're compassionate. I mean, if Matthew would give up his traitorous job, he would just at least try to obey the Torah. He would start praying, and he would live a little bit like, like at least try to honor. Of course we'd welcome him in with open arms into the temple. For them, they say, you know, if Matthew would just meet the basic criteria, of course, um, of course we'd welcome in, him into our lives and our community, but that's the difference. Jesus welcomes Matthew in with open arms long before he met any criteria other than being a sinner. He brought nothing except for his sin and all of his sinful friends. Like, this is what I got, Jesus. 
And Jesus says, that sounds good, let's eat. See, there's a word of profound hope, but there's also a word of warning. Especially for the more devout people in our midst. And the warning is this, never let your pursuit of holiness before God cause you to miss the heart of God. Because that's what happened to the Pharisees. They so desperately wanted to be holy before God that they utterly missed God's heart. And how do you know if you really know the heart and heartbeat of God? Like, how do we know? How do you know if someone really knows God's heart? Is it how much of the Bible they've memorized? No. Is it how often they show up at church? No. Is it how much they give? Or No. How do you know if someone really knows the heart of God? How do they treat people who are really different from them? Especially those they consider morally inferior to them. How do they treat people whose lives are messier, more scandalous, or more sinful? God's reflex towards sin is not first judgment and wrath. His reflex is mercy and compassion. And the question for us is, do we share that same reflex? When we see someone struggling with a sin or maybe walking openly in a sin that for us is just more repulsive or repugnant or, or disgusting, you name it, is our response compassion for them as fellow sinners you know, who are both sinful by birth and by choice, who are suffering under it, or is it contempt? Do we, do we have a sense of we're all humans and we all live in this broken world and these broken bodies that we desperately want to see redeemed? Or do we have a sense that I can't believe them and they're so much worse? If we don't have that reflex towards mercy and compassion, I would say it's because we still... We're still on the journey of discovering and understanding the heart of God. And there's something about us, especially those of us who are word people. And I mean, I'm showing you this is in the word. This isn't, this isn't a, a unique Kevin, Kevin Jameson version interpretation. Like this is, this is here, and it's really, really clear. But there's something about, oftentimes, people who are really serious about the word, that this this attitude, this mindset creeps in that it's a combination of our guilt and our shame, the lies of the world, the distortions of the, the evil one, that leads us to think that God is just by nature very serious, stern, strict, and severe, and he's usually pretty angry. We have this image of God that he's very strict, stern, severe, and usually angry. We believe the lie that God is most glorified in us when we are most miserable and groveling before him. We think that that's when he's happiest, when we feel our worst. And again and again, Jesus shows us that this is simply not true. It is not an accurate representation of who God is because Jesus was God in human flesh. He was God put perfectly on display. And again and again, Jesus, 
shows mercy and compassion to people in their sin. He moves toward them, not away from them. And it's confusing and it's confounding, especially to religious people. It's the Pharisees. What is he doing? But it's not even just the Pharisees. It's John's disciples. And that leads us to the last story. So the first story teaches us he has the authority. The second teaches us he has the desire to forgive sins. The last story, it at least, it speaks to, it answers part of the question, how do we live in response to this? We're told that the disciples of John came to him, and the John being spoken of here is John the Baptist. And if you know anything about John the Baptist, you know that he was a unique individual. He lived in the wilderness. He wore very uncomfortable clothing on purpose so that he would be perpetually, he would feel uncomfortable. He was basically a scavenger who ate locusts and honey, and he only ever really wrote one sermon, which was repent. He just preached that one over and over again. His disciples adopted that ascetic, like self, self-denial way of life, self-denying way of life. To even hear John preach, you'd have to walk like 20 miles into the wilderness just to hear him tell you to repent, uh, and then you would walk home. And so John is the perfect embodiment of a life of repentance, remorse over sin, self-denial. And John's disciples, they come to Jesus because they're utterly confused. Because John is a really big deal. Jesus is claiming to be an even bigger deal. And John's like, I'm the opening act for this guy. Jesus rolls in, and while John and his disciples are scavenging for locusts to eat, they hear stories about Jesus going to the rich, corrupt tax collector's house and sharing these feasts. And they're so confused. Like, what are you doing? They ask, why are we in the Pharisees fasting, but your disciples do not fast? Why do we live these lives of self-denial, and your disciples are living it up. And Jesus responds. It's such a good response. <laughs> it's such a big response. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Here's what Jesus is saying. For you to fast right now, that would be like going to your daughter's wedding with a cardboard sign that says repent, sitting in the corner, wearing sackcloth and ashes and refusing to eat. It would be ridiculous and it would show you have no ability to read the room. Because if you were able to read the room right now, you would be feasting right alongside of us. Look around. People are being healed. People are finding grace and forgiveness and <laughs> repentance. Sick are being made well. Why would you fast? And we know that in that day, fasting was a means of repentance, and it was also a means of growing in your hunger and longing for God. It was a way of saying, God, we want you to draw near. And Jesus is, in essence, saying, guess what? I'm here. It would make no sense for you to fast longing for God to draw near when God is right here at the dinner offering you a plate and a drink. 
And then Jesus, he gives these, these two pictures. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. Now, both of these illustrations, he's saying the same thing. I'll, I'll focus on the second one, the wineskins. Wineskins were basically leather bags that were used for holding liquid back in the day. And when they were new, they were very pliable. As they got older, they would get very brittle. Now, it's fine if you put water or oil or even old wine into an old wineskin. You don't need it to be very pliable. It just has to hold it. But new wine, that's wine that's still fermenting. It's still going through that process. And so if you were to put new wine and an old wineskin, eventually kaboom, wine everywhere. And I imagine in that day, this was like the classic rookie mistake. You know, like putting diesel in your car when you're 16 or dish soap in the dishwasher and having a bubble out. Like, I imagine this had happened a few times and it was one of those like everyone would laugh at you when you put new wine into the old wineskin and it burst everywhere. And Jesus, what he's saying here is all of your old categories for understanding God, sin, righteousness, mercy, they're not all wrong. They're just not big enough to fully understand what I've come to do. And they're going to break if you try to force what I'm doing into them. Jesus is not saying that the Old Testament is irrelevant or it's disconnected. He is saying that there's something that makes the New Testament new, though. And what it is that makes the New Testament new is that God has come to de decisively deal with our sin, not by giving us more rituals or requiring more sacrifices. You know, no bleeding bird, no bleeding beast, no hyssop branch, no priest, as we sang earlier. He hasn't come to give us more rituals to go through. Instead, he came to be a sacrificial offering on our behalf, to bring one era to an end and to start a new era that's open, that's free, and that must radically reshape how we understand the world. And what Jesus is saying here is to fast at this moment means you don't understand the times at all. This is the best moment in history. Everyone should be feasting. And he says, but the time will come where you won't feast, you will fast. And I think he's talking primarily there about the, the, the days between his death and his resurrection. But I also think it's more than appropriate for Christians to fast. And I think we can fast, and the reason we can fast is we fast to, to deepen our hunger and longing for God and for him to return. I would argue that some of you might encounter God in a fresh and new and powerful way if you started fasting. Fasting isn't wrong at all. But I would say having a heart of fasting like they did in the Old Testament, of just, which is basically almost a form of repentance, just a constant state of, we are such miserable sinners. Will you please show us mercy? I do think that Jesus has done away with that. Not done away with repentance. Don't hear me wrong. Not done away with confession of sins. But done away with a posture. A posture of fasting. I think fasting is something we step into, but it's not where we live. I think what Jesus Christ has done for us is he's invited us to live a life of feasting. And this is hard for us because we are affluent and we can feast all the time. 
for any reason. But I think the feasting that Jesus invites us to, it's a celebration that despite our sins, our flaws, and our failures that God hasn't pulled away from us, he's actually drawn near to us. We feast on Christ and we feast in light of the gospel when we remember that the words Jesus said to the paralytic, he speaks to all of us who draw near in faith. My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness of sins, like it, it should lead, when you know sins, past, present, and future, when you know they're forgiven once and for all, it should lead to a level of freedom and joy, celebration, born of gratitude. And I don't think that, I think celebration and gratitude, that's peak Christian maturity. I think we have repentance, that's part of it. Faith. But when you get to a place where everything is a gift and it's a life of gratitude, everything is feasting in response to what Christ has done, that's peak maturity in the Christian life. When you're able to rest in his forgiveness. Soren Kierkegaard once said that a person rests in the forgiveness of sins when one's thoughts of God, one's thought of God does not remind one of one's sin, but rather of the fact that they have been forgiven. So challenging. So that what has happened in the past is now not a remembrance of how badly one did, but of how much one was forgiven. He's saying that the life of a Christian is a life of gratitude and celebration. And I'll end by saying this, that when grat gratitude and celebration take root in your heart, you'll find that your embrace of others grows bigger, not smaller. When you recognize that everything is a gift by grace, your embrace of other people will grow bigger and not smaller. You'll be able to embrace people wherever they are because you know that embracing doesn't always mean endorsing. Jesus embraced a whole lot of people when he wouldn't endorse a whole lot about their lives. But he would embrace them as people created in the image of God and as objects of God's heart and God's mercy. And when people start doing that, it displays for the world a kind of community that the world's never seen. And that's what made the early church so powerful. And that's the power that we have as God's people. As we move to the Lord's table, here's the drama that Jesus gave to remind us that we, while we were still sinners, God drew near to us and Christ died for us. That his body was broken for us when our bodies should have been broken because of sin. His blood was poured out for us when it's our blood that should have been spilled for our sins. And so when we come to the table, this is a table where we celebrate, we feast, we rejoice in gratitude of what Christ has done for us and the life of gratitude and celebration he's invited us into. So if you're a believer, I encourage you to come and to feast, celebrate. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who came he moved heaven and earth to bring you to God. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.